Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. We're starting a brand new week together. Thank you for being here. Watchmen on the Wall is here to help make sense of the world around us. Today, Mac Dominic starts to explore what the Bible says about the sons of God and the Nephilim. Pastor Larry answers a Bible question, and Larry Stamm has a Messianic Minute. Our online prophecy conference is underway. It started Friday and goes through this Saturday. Ten speakers with hours and hours of prophecy teaching. It's all online and on demand. Get your all-access pass and start watching today. Call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or visit the conference page of our website, swrc.com. Speaking of our website, be sure to check out our website for the latest prophecy-related materials. New items are being added almost every day. swrc.com. Resources by Jonathan Kahn, Tom Horn, Mark Hitchcock, James Collins, J.R. Church, Larry Stamm, Donald Perkins, Michael Hoggard, and many, many more. Hundreds of books and DVDs right there for you, your Sunday school, homeschool, or small group. Check it out, swrc.com. That's swrc. Staff evangelist James Collins is here now to begin a conversation with Mac Dominic about the sons of God and the Nephilim. The Bible is a supernatural book. It tells of supernatural events. However, many Christians today seem to want to pick and choose what is supernatural in the Bible and what is not. With me today to talk about the supernatural worldview of the Word of God is Mac Dominic. Mac has produced two fantastic teaching DVDs, this teaching DVD set titled The Sons of God and the Nephilim. Mac, thanks for being on The Watchman on the Wall with me today. Oh, thank you, James. It is always a privilege to be on your broadcast. Well, Mac, Genesis 6 speaks about the sons of God and giants in the earth. In your DVD, you call Genesis 6 one of the most marginalized passages in the Word of God. What exactly did you mean by that? The truth of the matter is, well, let me just put it this way. I've been a member of a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, not the same church, but different churches, for over 50 years, and I have never, ever heard one pastor preach or teach on Genesis chapter 6. Now, I have as a Sunday school teacher, but I have never heard one pastor even mention it. And any pastor that has done a study on Genesis in the churches that I have been in over the years, and I'm not being critical, but, you know, it's just the reality when it comes to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, they pretty much skip it. They skip it, right. And that's what I mean by marginalized, is that it is not taught, even in Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches, for the most part. And, you know, I've gone to very conservative churches, and I've never heard it from the pulpit. I know when I was in seminary, I had visited with my Hebrew professor about Genesis 6, 
and he basically did the same thing. He just kind of blew me off, and <laughs> so I had to do my own research into it. Now, there are three views, Mac, that most people have to approach Genesis 6 and the sons of God. Now, in this DVD set, you do a fantastic job explaining those three views. What are those three views? If we can call them by what their technical name is, they are called the Sethite view, the royalty view, and the supernatural view. The Sethite view states that the sons of God were of the line of Seth. You know, James, that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and after Abel was killed by Cain and Cain was banished, Seth was born, and was, of course, through the line of Seth that we get Noah and the patriarchs, of course, after the flood. And so the Sethite view says that the sons of God were simply members of the line of Seth and that the daughters of men were the line of Cain and that they intermarried and that with this intermarriage, wicked men were produced through this line. And people that believe this don't really even go much into the whole giant view or they don't even go much into the Nephilim or that meaning of what that Hebrew word means. But basically, they just say it's the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain, which produced ungodly people. And that's pretty much the Sethite view. Now, the royalty view says that there were actually kings in prior, that lived prior to the flood, and these kings intermarried with common women and engendered a race or a sect of human beings that were evil because they were kings and they didn't marry up to their level. And that also really makes no sense whatsoever. But finally, the supernatural view follows the text of the Word of God. And that is one thing that we really need to emphasize, is that if we want to properly interpret the Bible, we must always interpret Scripture in the light of other Scripture, and we must give preeminence to what the text actually says and not what we really think. And so if you follow the text, you see that the sons of God in the Hebrew, the Benai Elohim, are spoken of as angels other places of the Old Testament, the book of Job being one of the most predominant ones. But the sons of the Benai Elohim are spoken of as angels throughout the Old Testament. The daughters of men there, actually, when you look at the text, it says the daughters of Adam, which would include all the females of the human race at this point. And then the offspring of these marriages were the Nephilim, which is a word that's translated giants in most of our English Bibles because that's from the Greek Septuagint, the word gigantus from the Septuagint, but the Hebrew word is Nephilim. And so that word appears in the book of Genesis and again in the book of Numbers, and it speaks of giants, always speaks of giants. You know, we know, we read in the book of Numbers that Goliath was among the Nephilim, and there were others among the Nephilim. And when the Hebrews went into the Promised Land, the Nephilim were in the land, as we're told in the book of Numbers. So those three views are basically the three choices that scholars give us. The Sethite view was actually made popular by Augustine, 
and the reformers, although Julius Africanus was the first that we find that purported the Sethite view, but really up until the time of Augustine, around 400 A.D., the church pretty much held to the supernatural view of Scripture. The royalty view was not put forth really until Rabbi Akiva back after the death of Christ, and that's been taken up by a couple modern scholars that hold the royalty view, but that one's really hard to uphold. But the Reformers and the Reformation Church were the ones that came up with the Sethite view, and that, as a result, in Protestant denominations, that's pretty much what we see throughout Protestant churches. Well, like you said, the Sethite view and the royalty view really don't add up. The supernatural view is the only one that really makes sense with Scripture, and they fit with the New Testament passages found in the writings of Peter and Jude. Can you tell me a little bit about those passages? That's exactly right. Second Peter chapter 5 and verse 4 and 5 and Jude chapter 6, it talks about the angels that sinned. Before the days of Noah, the angels that sinned. So we see that Peter and Jude really take numbers and name names. They talk about these angels that sinned during the days of Noah, so what else could this be talking about other than the supernatural view, which talks about the sons of God as angels, the daughters of men as human women, and the giants or the offspring of these unions as the Nephilim. It also goes on and says in the Old Testament in Genesis 6 that Noah was perfect in his generation. In other words, he had no Nephilim in his genealogy, and that's what is meant by Noah being perfect. When the Bible speaks about Noah being perfect in his generation, it really wasn't speaking about his moral character. It was referring, in fact, like you said, to his genetic makeup not being corrupted. Yeah. So this goes back, though, really, don't you think, to Genesis 3.15, Satan wanted to corrupt the seed of the woman, right? Absolutely. The Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, and the seed of the woman is very interesting because if you study that, the phrase, the seed of the woman, is something that baffled Hebrew scholars for years because they looked at human conception as the man planting the seed in the woman, and then that seed becoming a human being, which is conceived and born. But when you talk about the seed of the woman, that's the antithesis of what they really thought about conception and biology. And the only way, the only way in the Old Testament that you could logically have a seed of the woman was a virgin birth. And so if Messiah would come from the seed of the woman, meaning a human seed, then Satan could take this opportunity to corrupt the human seed, corrupt the human race, and therefore prevent the coming of the Messiah. It all just fits together like a glove. I'm talking today with Mac Dominic about his incredible teaching DVD set, The Sons of God and the Nephilim, Volume 1 and 2. And you can get your own copy of these DVDs right now by calling 1-800-652-1144. That toll-free number, once again, is 1-800-652-1144. Or you can go to our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Mac, am I correct to understand that God really sent the flood, Noah's flood, to preserve mankind, not to destroy it? 
Exactly. Because what had happened in the time of the Nephilim and the time of the Watchers, the human genome had been corrupted. And so, therefore, we look back at some of the extra-biblical narratives like the Book of Enoch and other writings like the Book of Jubilees. We find that the phrase in our Bible that says there was violence in the earth back in those times, if we get detail from some extra-biblical sources, we find that the Nephilim were destroying themselves, they were cannibalistic, they were going to destroy the human race. And so by sending the flood, yes, God was not happy. God was angry that man had completely turned to sin, but actually the reality is, is by sending the flood, God actually rescued the human race from complete destruction because had the Nephilim gene gone into the entire race, the entire race would have eventually ceased to exist and been destroyed. You mentioned outside the Bible some of the other sources that provide more evidence for the supernatural worldview of Genesis 6. Tell me a little bit about the Book of Enoch. That's an incredible book. It is an incredible book. You know, I am not an expert. I know some of the experts say that Enoch was written in the Second Temple period. I do not know whether that is a fact or not. We know that Jude says, as Enoch prophesied in the Bible, so the book of Enoch, though it is not inspired scripture, is endorsed by the New Testament, which is quite amazing. We further know that the Ethiopian Christian Church did put Enoch in the canon of Scripture, and they viewed it as the Word of God. We also know that the Book of Enoch was hidden from the Western Church for a long time. They had it down in Ethiopia, and I think that I mentioned this in the DVD about the gentleman from Great Britain that actually went to Ethiopia, I believe, in the 19th century, and retrieved a couple copies of the Book of Enoch and came back and translated them. So the Western Church did not have access to the Book of Enoch for a long, long time. And you read the Book of Enoch, it reads like Genesis, and you study the Book of Enoch, it is quite amazing. So while we cannot and will not say that it is inspired scripture, we can say that it is Jewish literature that was endorsed by the New Testament, which grants it a lot of credibility. Now, I really wonder, since Jude said that as Enoch prophesied, I really wonder if the book of Enoch is Second Temple literature, or if it is something that was preserved from before the flood. That would be quite incredible and amazing, but it's certainly not impossible. I agree with you. I believe that it probably most likely was written by Enoch because that's what Jude says. And so I think it was a pre-flood document. It's incredible. Now, do we find evidence of the Son of God and the Nephilim in other places such as the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls address that directly. And we find the Sons of God and and the Nephilim in all types of cultural, non-biblical, non-Christian, Gentile peoples scattered throughout the region as well. So it's all over the place if you look for it. Well, in Genesis 10 and 11, we read about a man named Nimrod. Who was Nimrod, 
And what was his intent with the building of the Tower of Babel? This is after the flood, but what was his intent? That is a very good question, and different people have different views on that. The honest-to-goodness truth is that what we read in the Bible is that mankind was building a tower to the heavens. Now, you read in Josephus that the Tower of Babel, was they were trying to build it to the heavens, In the event that God sent another flood, they'd have a structure that would rise above the floodwaters. There are other people that believe that the Tower of Babel was a gateway built over the abyss, and it was an interdimensional gateway to open up our dimension to the dimension of the watchers and fallen angels to bring them back, to bring back all the knowledge of the pre-flood period, And so there are a lot of different views of the Tower of Babel. And we believe that Nimrod, in all likelihood, was the leader of the group there that built the Tower of Babel. I know that Derek Gilbert says that Nimrod was the same as the Sumerian king in Merkur, and he tried to rebuild and expand an ancient temple in the city of Eridu dedicated to Enki, the god of the abyss. And so the Tower of Babel, in that instance, was looked at as the gate of the gods. But there are other views of Nimrod. The Bible says he began to become a Gaborim, or a mighty one in the earth. And the Bible talks about the fact that his father was Cush, but the way that is worded is very interesting even at that, because there is speculation that Nimrod may even have been the result of post-flood Nephilim inbreeding and those types of things. So it's really, really, really interesting, because the Septuagint calls Nimrod a giant, and it says he became the first to begin to be a giant in the earth. And so there is a lot going on there. We go into a lot of detail in the DVD, and I quote mainly a book by Tim Chafee named The Fallen, and Tim does an excellent job of going into the different aspects of who Nimrod was and what happened there. And so it's a really interesting study when you start talking about Nimrod. We've been talking with Mac Dominic about his teaching DVD set, The Sons of God and the Nephilim, Volume 1 and 2. We're out of time for today. Uh, Mac, would you join us again next time? Absolutely. James will continue this fascinating conversation about the Nephilim next time. If you'd like a copy of the entire conversation on the sons of God and the Nephilim, call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order your copy online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Pastor Larry has a question about the sons of God that he'll answer in just a moment. But first, here is Larry Stamm with today's Messianic Minute.
Shalom, friends. Larry Stamm here with a Messianic Minute. Biblical Connections Through a Jewish Lens. In the Exodus account, the Lord sends Moses to go to his people and tell them God has heard their cry and will bring them out of slavery in Egypt. When Moses asks God what he should say to the Israelites, God says to Moses, tell them, I am has sent me to you. This name for God was imprinted on the collective conscience of the Jewish people. That's why in John 8:58, when Jesus boldly declares his deity, before Abraham was, I am, some people tried to stone him. Why? Because they understood his claim to be Yahweh and rejected it. May we who understand and embrace his claim, believing in him as Lord and Savior, rejoice in Jesus, the great I am. For more connections, visit our website at LarryStam.org or see our Larry Stam Ministries Facebook page. Have you heard about our brand new podcast? You can now listen to insightful interviews, current events from a biblical perspective, and prophecy that helps you make sense of the world around you. Subscribe today to both of our podcasts, Watchman on the Wall, and our brand new podcast, In the Beacon's Light. You can get these podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, and TuneIn. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast today. Pastor Larry is coming now to answer your Bible questions. Email your Bible questions to askpastorlarry at swrc.com. Was Nebuchadnezzar a believer in God? Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, made a decree regarding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel 3.29 we read, Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Does this indicate that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in God? Well, I think it does. Nebuchadnezzar, the proud and infamous king of Babylon, had ordered that all who would not worship his massive statue should be thrown into a fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to comply, and they were thrown into this furnace. This furnace was a huge industrial furnace that was used for smelting metals and baking bricks. The Bible indicates that the flame was so hot that the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace were burned to death. Yet these three Jewish men were miraculously untouched by the fire and the heat. There were no scorch marks on their clothing and skin. They didn't even smell of smoke. After such an evident miracle, how could Nebuchadnezzar not become a believer in the God of Israel? However, Nebuchadnezzar's belief did not necessarily please God. While the Babylonian king acknowledged God's power, something that was unavoidable in view of what had just happened, Nebuchadnezzar never gave any real indication that he would worship only the God of Israel and no other. It is highly likely that Nebuchadnezzar just added the God of Israel to the list of gods he worshipped. Many of the ancients had pantheons of deities. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar made the God of Israel the chief god of his pantheon. 
but this is certainly not the kind of behavior that pleases the true and living God. Nebuchadnezzar was a wise leader who decided he could get more respect and cooperation from his conquered people by allowing them to worship their own deities. He took their lands, houses, and livestock, but he allowed them to keep their idols. History records that Nebuchadnezzar even worshipped some of these pagan deities himself. It is doubtful, therefore, that Nebuchadnezzar ever became a believer in God in the deepest sense of the phrase. If you have a Bible question for Pastor Larry, email askpastorlarry at swrc.com. That's askpastorlarry at swrc.com. Pastor Larry loves to answer your Bible questions. He does this on the radio and in his book, Digging Deeper. In Digging Deeper, Pastor Larry answers your questions about the Bible, the Christian life, and the end times. Over 135 questions answered. Get your copy of Digging Deeper by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order this outstanding resource online, swrc.com. We've been talking about giants, Nephilim, and sons of God today, and the Resource Center is no different. Today we're offering two DVDs, Sons of God and the Nephilim, Volume 1 and 2, by Mac Dominic. These DVDs will cover the events of Scripture from Genesis 6 through the flood itself. This series draws on new research and has assembled a wealth of knowledge from those who have remained true to the Word of God and actual historical accounts to compile this brand new documentary. Questions explored in this DVD set include, Who were the sons of God of Genesis 6? Who were the giants? What was their intention when arriving to our physical dimension? What was their impact on mankind? Can we identify these creatures in human history? The Sons of God and the Nephilim gives the viewer the answers not only to these questions, but other answers for those who seek the truth. Armed with this information and these DVDs, the viewer will be well-equipped to reach those who seek answers, not only with the truths that they seek, but more importantly, you'll be able to build a foundation of truth to support the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Get Volume 1 and 2 of The Sons of God and the Nephilim for a gift of $35 or more. Order yours today when you call one 800 652 one That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order these DVDs online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. And remember, when you order materials like this DVD set, you're supporting Watchmen on the Wall and helping us to continue to proclaim that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. We're here to bring clarity to the world around us. If we can ever be of any help to you or your family, please reach out. We have a dedicated staff ready to pray with you and for you. Call 
1-800-227-1144. Be encouraged, my friend. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Tomorrow, James Collins will continue his conversation with Mac Dominic about the Nephilim. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. 